Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the National Library of Australia. I'm David Wong, the Library's Assistant Director General of Information Technology. As we begin, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land. I thank their elders, past and present, for caring for this land we are now privileged to call home. So this weekend is the second of our Experience China Weekends, where we will explore Chinese culture, cuisine, art, landscape and architecture, and the Chinese diaspora as part of our programming for Celestial Empire, Life in China, 1644 to 1911. Celestial Empire and its public programs would not be possible without the support of a tremendous group of partners. It has been an extraordinary collaboration between government, commercial partners and individual donors. First and foremost, I thank the National Library of China for sharing its extraordinary collection with us and with all of you. I hope you'll take the chance to visit the exhibition this afternoon. I thank our partners, Shell in Australia, Seven Network, Wonder One, Proprietary Limited, Optus Singtel, Huawei, Cathay Pacific, TFE Hotels and Event Partners, the ANU's Centre for China in the World and Asia Society Australia for the generosity. I thank our government partners, the Australian Government, for support through the National Collecting Institution's Turing Outreach Program and the Australia China Council and the ACT Government through Visit Canberra. Now, I'd like to thank all of you for joining us this afternoon to hear from Barbara Nicol and Julie Stecker, who are here to reveal to us the stories of early Chinese restaurant businesses and the role that they played in the history of Chinese migration to Australia. Barbara Nicol completed her PhD at the University of Melbourne in 2012, following a career as a reference librarian and later manager of reader services at Swinburne University Library in Melbourne. Over the years, she developed a passion for urban history and also being an enthusiastic restaurant customer, she had become aware that the stories she was hearing about the city's very early restaurant sector departed in significant ways from historical understandings. As an enthusiastic restaurant customer, she reconstructed Melbourne's late 19th, early 20th century restaurant sector, believing that the relationship between the sector and the city's socio-cultural, economic and political landscape was always more complex and interdependent than has generally been acknowledged. She volunteers at the Chinese Museum and plans to publish her research later this year. Julie Stacker has worked in the archives, records and museum fields for over 25 years, including at state and national archives and museums. For the last 15 years, she has worked as a consultant, providing strategic and practical guidance to small and large organisations, particularly in New South Wales, the ACT and Tasmania. Her, her cross-disciplinary professional approach has informed her work as a historian, through which she focuses on 20th century comparative histories of immigration, Chinese businesses, and Australian and Canadian food cultures. So please welcome Barbara Nicol and Julie Stacker. Thanks very much, David. So I should, I should add uh, thanks to the National Library staff who've just been fabulous in helping us get set up today. They've done a wonderful job. Um, it's a real pleasure to be here today to see so many people who are interested in the history of what has become an international phenomenon. And we're going to look at the Australian part of that. 
my presentation is based on the research that I did for my Master of Philosophy thesis, and that's some years ago now. And that was a comparative study of Chinese restaurants in Sydney, Australia, in Toronto and Canada. But today I'm just looking at that Sydney portion. So why did I want to research the history of Chinese restaurants? Two reasons. First, I'd spent 12 months backpacking around the world and everywhere I went, there were Chinese restaurants, everywhere. And I started to ask myself, how did this come about, especially in Anglo countries where there was often a lot of discrimination? You know, how did the Chinese restaurant become this iconic business model that everybody flocked to? Secondly, I'd been working with a colleague whose brother wanted to do a PhD. But what he really wanted to do was sit around on the beach all day and swim. So he did a PhD in sandy beach ecology. <laughs> and I thought, I'm sure I can apply this to eating in Chinese restaurants. So I did. OK, so Chinese restaurants in Sydney. Oops. Yep. Chinese restaurants in Sydney from 1900 to 1960. So in the first half of the 20th century, the Chinese restaurant was one of the most visible symbols of cultural diversity in Sydney. As we know now, China is home to one of the world's great food cultures. In the period to 1960, new arrivals in Sydney came largely from Guangdong, the southern Chinese province with arguably one of the best of the Chinese cuisines. And if anyone hears from China and they want to debate that, we can do that later. Um, Therefore, perhaps it's not so surprising that Chinese food would become a popular addition to food choices for a largely Anglo-Celtic population. So between 1900 and 1960, Sydney's population grew from about 480,000, which is about the current size of Canberra or Newcastle, to just over 2 million people. So that's a fourfold increase. And over this period, Chinese restaurants emerged as distinct commercial enterprises. In 1900, there were 227 restaurants in Sydney. There were six Chinese businesses listed as restaurants. Three located in Campbell Street, for those of you who know Sydney, and one in each of Goulburn, Elizabeth and King Streets. By 1960, so 60 years later, and many restaurants had come and gone, 67 of over 1,000 restaurants were Chinese in name or style. Now, Sydney Chinese restaurants began much earlier than 1900. Yep, so, but this is the period I'm looking at. Uh, they began as a service for the local Chinese community, uh, but the period after World War I, some specifically aimed to attract customers from the wider community. So, in 19... In 1918 and 19, a number of Chinese restaurants of a standard to enjoy the title Leading Chinese Cafes opened in Sydney. The Pekin in Pitt Street, the Yijun, by 1921 this was called the Hong Kong, the Shanghai and the Tianjin, all in Campbell Street. Some of these um, high-class cafes had been permitted to tempor temporarily introduce Chinese chefs so the immigration authorities had said, fine, you can have a Chinese chef to replace the person who's leaving, um, to prepare Chinese dishes. The Tianjin Cafe was located in Sydney's Chinatown in Surrey Hills, and it was housed in a grand three-storey building with a tiled front at the ground floor level, double-fronted display windows and a cantilever canopy. 
The premises looked grand and the menu promised exotic delights. The menu was presented in both Chinese and English. It offered 55 dishes under different headings, soup, chop suey dishes, boiled noodles or fried noodles, fish, poultry, and then quite strangely, rice and bread. So menu item 51 was bread and butter. And that was clearly, it was a side dish, and also you could have it as an accompaniment to chop suey. So clearly they were making concessions to you know, Anglo-Australian ways of eating. Uh, a wide range of dishes included things like beche de mer, sea cucumber, bird's nest and shark's fin soup, chicken, pork, prawns, oysters, seasonal fish, water chestnuts, bamboo shoots, mushrooms, ginger, and they made a note that the ginger was used in savoury dishes because Anglos may well have expected that they would get a sweet ginger dish, like a preserved ginger. Uh, pigeon, duck, Chinese green, be green peas, soybean, soybean sprouts, pickles, silver cabbage and tomatoes. So they were really extensive menus. They weren't just one or two dishes. In the years leading up to and during World War II, the presence of Chinese refugees and seamen in Sydney was a major factor influencing the growth and character of Chinese restaurants well into the 1950s. So discharged Chinese seamen, seamen who had deserted from their vessels and evacuees were collectively referred to by immigration authorities as wartime arrivals. And um, you're all probably aware that Japan invaded uh, northern China in the 1930s. So as early as 1938, Chinese seamen began deserting from ships um, that had docked in Australian ports and that were heading for Japan. A 1943 inquiry into the working conditions of Chinese seamen concluded that there were about 500 alien seamen ashore in New South Wales, mostly in Sydney. So in total, over the war years, Australia hosted some 991 Chinese wartime arrivals, many located in Sydney, and these men became clientele, staff and potential proprietors for existing and new cafes. And these cafes provided meals to everyone, from wharf labourers to people in what they called the best part of the city. Also during the war, American influences via the armed forces created a significant market for Chinese restaurants. Sydney ciders, not bombarded with chop suey and chow mein since the turn of the century, were delighted to experience Cantonese cuisine whereas um, Americans sought out something more exotic, Peking, Shanghai, Sichuan and Hunan cuisine. Now, restaurant owners were very active in lobbying the Chinese consul for um, access to staff through immigration. So Chinese restaurants and their owners and their employees were part of the local and national debates on immigration. The restaurants themselves were sites for shaping the role of small business in the Chinese community and a force in changing Australian foodways. Restaurants were important sites for family and community focus, and uh, Barbara will talk a little about how uh, restaurant owners used immigration regulations to bring out family members, often under different names, claiming that they were experienced chefs. It's just an immigration file to give you an illustration of the sort of work, paperwork they had to do. Um, so restrictive and discriminatory immigration regulations profoundly affected both the demography of the local Chinese communities and businesses, 
and Chinese restaurants became a focus for official anxiety about the effects of immigration. But I think it's pretty clear that it might have been official anxiety, but really nothing stopped everybody going to eat at Chinese restaurants. So I don't know that there was any actual anxiety on the ground on the part of the patrons. So despite these restrictive immigration policies, Chinese business people and workers capitalised on changing city demographics, local prosperity, international migration and their culinary heritage. So the Chinese restaurant became a cultural icon and a visible symbol of cultural diversity. And by 1960, Chinese restaurants were at the hub of post-war internationalism that generated Australian interest in other countries, other cultures and in other cuisines. So I'm just going to leave you with this photograph of, you might not think that this, a Chinese restaurant would look like this in Sydney in 1949, so the modern China cafe, you know, refers to both modernism in China, but how gorgeous, how beautiful is that cafe? And really, that's not what I would visualise when I think of a Chinese restaurant, but how interesting it is. Right, thank you very much, and I'll hand over to Barbara. Good afternoon, everyone, as well, and um, uh, I'm very pleased that the National Library has chosen this subject to, uh, to emphasise over this absolutely wonderful exhibition that you have here at the moment, and it's just great. So, Julie and I have both remarked that there's been a tendency to regard the development and spread of Chinese restaurants as a post-World War II phenomenon. Apart from historical approaches to Chinese food and food culture by um, people like Annette Chunhua and Elizabeth Chong, Elizabeth uh, um, very uh, enthusiastic about uh, uh, our Chinese uh, community in Melbourne, uh, and the inclusion of Chinese restaurant businesses in wider historical research, uh, uh, particularly by Sophie Couchman and others, uh, particularly focusing on Melbourne's Chinatown. Um, but apart from that, histories have implied that the early Chinese sector was small, were small local businesses established by lower-class Chinese as part of the community's support infrastructure and of very little wider influence. 19th century representations of drunkenness, prostitution, drugs and depravity have, privileged over, um, have been privileged over a more diverse restaurant sector. And I'll quote Richard Beckett from Convicted Tastes, which he wrote in 1984, published in 1984. Chinese eating houses up to the 1950s produced a bastard cuisine aimed at satisfying Westerners who were in the main drunk. They did not touch the palates of the average Australian. Well, all restaurants... I don't know if there are any Melbournians here, but if there are, you'll be aware, well aware of our six o'clock swill. The um, um, restaurants had to contend with... All restaurants had to contend with drunks. It, was, it wasn't until the 1980s that Victoria's infamous liquor laws um, 
before that, they required hotels to close at 6 o'clock. And uh, also, hotels had a monopoly on serving alcohol with meals, as did some of our more substantial restaurants. Um, others, other restaurants, got around the problem of not being able to serve alcohol after a certain time in very creative ways, including the Chinese. Um, but as I emphasised, drunkenness was a problem for all, all of the city's dining sector up until um, the law was changed in 1980s. While many early Chinese restaurants were small and short-lived, as we've observed in Sydney, Melbourne supported a number of very successful businesses over the early decades. Um, and interestingly enough, I think as Julius pointed out, that it was a period when the Chinese um, community was declining in number. Apart from a moderate dip over the first three or four years of the 20th century, as immigration restriction created Chinese business uncertainty, and again over the Great Depression, the sector has enjoyed continuous growth. And here we have um, some slides of some of the uh, restaurants in Melbourne at the time. The, this is the Changhua restaurant in Heffernan Lane. Um, it, uh, it, there was a restaurant on that site and from 1891 and uh, it uh, became the Changhua in 1916. It's still operating, as far as I know, as a Chinese restaurant in Melbourne. Um, the um, the Yinbun Lo cookshop, uh, that, was, that was established around 1899 and in 1920 it relocated to Russell Street and became the Oriental, a very popular restaurant with Chinese and non-Chinese customers. I think it closed around 1972. I don't have a slide of the Lingnan, but the Lingnan was also a very, a very important restaurant in the sector. Um, it it uh, was established in 1907. Um, it, um, it became known as the Lingnan in 1941. But in 1910, Chinese merchants and others with national and international business and political connections made the move out of Little Burke Street, establishing two sub substantial restaurants from the outset, the partners of both actively sought the custom of non-Chinese diners with a dual Chinese and non-Chinese menu. Um, the, the white building uh, on the right was the Peking Cafe, uh, circa 1910 to 1928. And next to it, the Oriental at 189 um, Russell Street, former, was formerly the Yin Bun Lo that I mentioned that relocated from um, Little Burke Street in 1920. Uh, it, I don't know exactly when it closed, but it was still certainly operating in 1970. Partners of the Peking Cafe included Sydney merchant Louis Haydan, who also had a poultry farm at Braybrook and later became a shareholder in, in Sydney's upmarket Peking Cafe, which Julie mentioned. The hotel and cafe Canton was two doors up from the Melbourne Town Hall in Swanson Street. 
It opened in 1910 and it was sold to a Greek restaurateur in 1937. Partners in the Hotel and Café Canton included Merchant Li Yuan Sam, Grand Master of the Yi Hing, the Chinese uh, Masonic Society, and businessman Charles Lim Ki, Louis Ling Tak, and others. It was usual practice for Chinese restaurants to um, celebrate the opening of their, their new restaurants in style, and they always invited leaders in the uh, both Chinese and non-Chinese communities. So, of course, the Peking Cafe and the Hotel and Cafe Canton were no exceptions. Sorry, I, um, I thought I had a, a... Beg your pardon, I didn't have a menu. Uh, uh, I think it's coming up. Sorry, there is a, there's a menu coming up. Um, guests at the Hotel Cafe... Hotel and Café Canton including, included the Consul General for China, Mr Chok Hong Cheong, and former Lord Mayor of Melbourne, politician Sir Henry Whedon. The menu, <coughs> the menu at the Hotel and Café Canton included edible bird's nest soup, chicken and ham, shark's fin and French Alaska sweets. The establishment of these restaurants at the time coincided with the revolutionary movement in China and the partners of both were members of the Nationalist Party. I think... I'm sorry, I do have... A, I do have we'll, we'll get to that in the uh, menu in a minute. Um, the significant restaurants continued to open including in 1923 the popular Eastern Cafe in Russell Street. From the mid-1930s, when government concessions enabled local Chinese traders to introduce temporary substitutes and workers... Um, Chinese businessmen cast their entrepreneurial gaze um, into suburban Melbourne. And here we have the Tinsin Restaurant in Ackland Street. Um, it opened in uh, 1937 and it was still operating in 1974, in fact, quite, quite a while. The uh, partners moved across uh, Ackland Street and opened the very upmarket Tinsin restaurants in 1957. And I think the, um, the Tinsin was located uh, in this, this section of the building. And the Taiping restaurant. The Taiping was on Punt Road, right near St Kilda Junction, for those who know that area. The Taiping opened in 1939 and um, was there for and well into the 1970s. In fact, it's still... I took this photograph about five or six years ago. It was still uh, called, as you can see, the Taiping, but, of course, it had... Uh, there were many different uh, partnerships over that time. So, looking at non-Chinese customers and the understood, early understood history of 
them um, being drunk and fairly disorderly. Um, I, I spent a lot of time searching archives and, and interviewing people about older people about their memories of eating in Chinese restaurants. So by the turn of the 20th century, the city's emerging intelligentsia of artists, writers and later university and college communities were venturing into Chinatown. Opera singer Joy, who I interviewed, um, she, was, she uh, was in her 80s at the time, discovered the Changhua in the 1930s. She observed, we called ourselves bohemians to save any other title being put upon us. It was an adventure, really, and then after we'd been there once or twice, it became somewhere we wanted to go because the food was so good. She emphasised that they always felt at home at the Changhua. But I'd like to add other groups that I've identified. Um, city workers suppliers of local Chinese businesses and nurses and doctors coming off late shifts at the Melbourne General Hospital, which was across Lonsdale Street at the time. They were grateful for the welcoming atmosphere of Chinese restaurants in a city almost closed down for the night. Nurses living in the hospital's, the hospital's hostel also discovered their takeaway service. In the late 1920s, Dorothy, nurse Dorothy recalled that when we were going out in the evening, we would call in and order our dim sims and pick them up when we came home. It was very popular with the nursing staff. War brought increased custom to all city restaurants, as, as Julie has um, indicated, observed about Sydney. Um, Workers in war-related industries crowded the city and frequently found their way into the restaurants um, to eat. In mid-1942, they were joined by thousands of Allied servicemen. They included Filipinos, Dutch, Chinese and British, but the vast majority were American. In early 1943, 23,000 First Marine Division servicemen were arrested in Melbourne and in major regional centres in Victoria. Um, wherever the servicemen were encamped, their patronage of local Chinese restaurants was a prominent event in the wartime memories of several Chinese and non-Chinese informants. As US war correspondent John Lardner commented, Melbourne has dozens of Chinese restaurants. That's a bit of an exaggeration, but not a, not a lot. He said, where you can obtain the local substitute for the hamburger or to take out, i.e. the dim sim, a ball of chopped meat spiced and wrapped in cabbage leaves. <coughs> Excuse me. Further evidence of growing non-Chinese customer was discovered in the archives of the, de de the Deputy General, uh, the Director General of Security and his state deputies, who on the, on the, were on the alert for Japanese spies. They turned their gaze on Chinese restaurant staff and customers across the nation. As in Sydney, Melbourne hosted many Chinese wartime refugees and a number were found, were, a number found work in restaurants. While no spies were located, um, Chinese and non-Chinese 
civilians and Australian and Allied servicemen were present in all restaurants in the CBD. Turning to Chinese food and the question of authenticity, when Richard Beckett labelled early Chinese restaurant food served to non-Chinese as bastardised, he was implying that the food was a hybridisation lacking authenticity. Surviving menus from the 1910s, 20s and 30s, backed by other sources, show that while restaurants offered close to authentic and very specialised dishes, menus also became Australianised. By the late 1910s, for example, the distinctive Cantonese emphasis on fish, poultry and pork had been joined by beef and local wild fish such as snapper and Murray cod. These were important shifts in the development of a uniquely local Chinese cuisine, as, as Julie has indicated. So this is um, from uh, an extract from the menu of the Eastern Cafe, and you can see rump steak um, is being offered, and um, braised rump steak with bitter melon. So... Um, it, uh, it was, it was uh, a very much a uh, combination of cultures there. The Eastern Cafe menu uh, was a substantial document of nine pages comp uh, comprising an English-language section of 47 items and a Chinese-language section of 120. Um, they included uh, beige de mer, imported Chinese mushrooms, steamed duck and fish, and traditional Chinese vegetables and condiments. But uh, as you can see, the, uh, they also offered uh, steak and, uh, and uh, combined it with bitter melon. Modifications to Chinese dishes were not entirely a consequence of non-Chinese food preferences. An increase in import duties in the 1930s, for example, had a flow-on effect on Chinese restaurant menus. An important informants and other sources confirmed that this influenced decisions to reduce the more expensive imported ingredients such as shark's fin and dried Chinese mushrooms in their dishes. Also, edible bird's nests became prohibited imports from the 1930s following an outbreak of Newcastle disease among wild and domestic birds. So to dismiss Chinese restaurants, restaurant food as inauthentic or bastardised denies a more complex early cultural landscape and perpetuates a very narrow and negative approach to Chineseness and early Chinese entrepreneurialism. Turning then briefly to have a look at the role Chinese restaurants have played in the history of Chinese migration to Australia. As Julie has indicated, from the outset, the Immigration Restriction Act of 1901 allowed Chinese businessmen of standing to introduce workers for limited periods. In 1934, Chinese local, local traders, making a substantial contribution to the economy, also became eligible to to apply to introduce workers. Restaurateurs became eligible to apply to introduce cooks and cafe workers, providing the restaurant met certain criteria. And as Julie 
indicated restaurateurs took the opportunity to bring in young family and um, uh, often under another name. I interviewed uh, two or three people who, who had a different name from their father and, um, and uh, they also learned their cooking skills from, from, uh, from here, from Australia. It, it's interesting that many of these, these children uh, also went on to open their own restaurants and many of our suburban restaurants were, in fact, um, originally owned by this new uh, group. This is a... Um, <clears throat> these young, young people came into the country uh, on a certificate of exemption. This is from the dictation test. This one I found in the archives. It's um, with a young man who was, in fact, um, found to be working in a, in a Melbourne restaurant, not working, not cooking. He was supposed to be a cook. He, uh, he wasn't working as a cook on several occasions when the restaurant was inspected and his certificate was, was uh, cancelled and he had to return home. And this, this did happen quite frequently, but generally speaking... Um, many young people uh, came, came to Australia this way and, as I said, opened their own restaurants. The restaurant's dominant customer base and the kind of food served had a significant bearing on the success of applications. Chinese food and non-Chinese custom being a combination regarded favourably. Australianised Chinese dishes were relatively simple to cook and not too foreign for non-Chinese tastes. It boosted number, Chinese customer numbers, increasing a restaurant's chance of meeting the department's requirements. <coughs> Excuse me. Income derived from trade with China was also encouraged from the 1930s. It's no coincidence that Australia's goodwill mission to East Asia was undertaken in 1934 by Minister for External Affairs John Latham. And in August 1941... Sir Fred Eggleston was appointed by the Menzies UAP government as Australia's first minister for China. And here he is at the Taiping restaurant um, on Punt Road. Um, it, the the uh, function was hosted by the vice consul for China, Mr Ta Zhao Wenyan and Madame Zhao, and it was on the 4th of August 1941 left to right Mrs Dunstan, the wife of the Premier, uh, Sir Albert Dunstan, Sir Fred and the consul, vice consul. From this time, Chinese restaurant menus became politicised. Culinary, culinary responses to changes in Australia's immigration laws as much as customer preferences and other local conditions. By 1950, the city's Chinese restaurant numbers had risen to 31. 13 were in the CBD, 13 in the city, in city fringe suburbs and five in middle and outer suburbs. By 1960, there were 82 Chinese restaurants across Greater Melbourne. They'd become a fundamental part of the city's shifting socio-cultural landscape and an unremarkable presence in the nation's cities and towns. <coughs> 